0: Optimism Vaccine, I'm Steve, and joining us, it's not Adam Myros. we're actually unsure of where he is, but uh, we got Jake Trapila here.
1: Hey, hey Steve, how you doing?
0: I'm doing fucking fantastic, thank you for asking. Uh, Do you have any thoughts on where Adam Myros might be today?
1: (sighs) Oh man, I mean, aside from it being another funeral, probably out in the pasture milking some cows, you know what I'm saying? Probably,
0: yeah. He's been, I, I mean, a little, little inside baseball here for the listeners, but um, Myros, I, I think he's actually protesting this week. That's why he's not on the episode. He's been demanding that we uh, specifically cover Japanese milking porn on on the podcast. And I, there's been a little bit of pushback and, and he's unhappy. So we're going to try and rectify the situation. Uh, joining us as well, it's, uh, it's Jack Easton. Jack, do you have any thoughts on the ongoing Myros crisis?
2: I mean, as I think all of our listeners know, I mean this this podcast has always been an uneasy battle of trying to combat Adam's worst impulses and keeping keeping the train on the tracks, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he's always the milk in this and the Japanese customs that and I mean it's it's like we'll just we'll just do it. We'll we'll have to cover it, you know.
0: Yeah. It's, it and seems important.
2: The fact that he commented on it while at a relative's funeral, though, particularly interesting to me. I mean, he's just, he's on his mind. He can't get it out of his mind.
0: Yeah, yeah. I don't know, like, what's running through his head right now, but I also thought it was weird that, uh, you know, the only other message that we've gotten from him in the last week is him pointing out that uh, both the new Woody Allen and the new Roman Polanski movies have leaked online, and he seems just uh, adamant that we cover both. So I, I don't know what's going on with the guy. He's, he's got rough. some yeah, some some I'm, interesting I'm be- things that he's zeroing in on here.
2: I'm beginning to suspect that maybe the buy Adam Myros a gun campaign is misguided. I'm not sure we want to arm this man. No, no. he's <laughs> uh,
0: not a person who should be allowed to carry a firearm. If there's ever been, you know, a, a good case study for uh, abolishing the Second Amendment, it's probably just Adam Myros day to day. so uh, but hey, We're not here to talk about Adam Myros' personal failures because not enough time in the day. But we are here to do my favorite thing, which is talk about a bunch of Hong Kong action flicks that we watch. So uh, this is exciting because I was firmly in the camp of I have uh, not a lot of of cultural context to add uh, around the discussion of these films. but. Uh, Goddamn, they're cool uh, we watched the long arm of the lost series and uh, just a couple of interesting things that that stuck out to me here uh the the first one is directed by johnny Mack. and as far as i can tell is this is like his only feature film that he's directed is that right
2: yep we, i there's there is yeah. partially a reason for that he was a decorated tv director prior to this but yeah he made it was like a one and done for him. He made this under his own production company, and then his brother, um, Michael Mack, became like the director of the production company. He never directed another film. He was a very successful film producer for 20-ish years or so, and now apparently he's moved on to mainland China, and he works in like real estate and agriculture. So. Oh, fun, but, fun. Yeah, a very successful dude.
1: Just yeah, real quick. One of those, if you you get those people who say, "Oh, you know, he's got the the perfect filmography." Charles Lawton, yeah, one hit wonder. Well, now you can add Johnny Mac to that pile, and mm-hmm. uh, you got it. Got just one in. Boom, nailed it. Got out of the game.
2: That's Very how you do different it. movie too. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: just 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 a little <laughs> bit. Yeah, no, it is kind of interesting because you know thinking about Long Arm of the Law and where it sits in in the world of you know, Hong Kong action crime films, uh, extremely influential, extremely important, extremely fucking good. And basically it it, kind of created a template for this golden period of Hong Kong action, which, you know, I I think we would argue is probably the 1980s, but specifically the second half of the 1980s. Yeah.
2: Yeah. uh, 85 to like 95 ish was like really Hong Kong golden period.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's it's just wild to me that yeah, Johnny Mack kind of creates this template and then just kind of fucks off and doesn't make any more movies, but it, it it is it's it's like you're watching kind of some proto John Woo stuff going on here and then on top of that as the series continues and we'll, we'll talk about this more, it's so funny to watch it kind of switch gears into Proto John Woo to by the time you get to Long Arm of the Law three, there's specific scenes where it's just like, oh, you you just you just want this to be a John Woo movie at this point,
2: <laughs> uh, which is amazing. It's yeah, it's really. I mean, in in one sense, the Long Arm of the Law uh, franchise is almost uh, like the perfect kind of like overall allegory for the Hong Kong film industry, and in that the first one is this incredible, like you say, just incredibly influential masterpiece that kind of really formed the template for so many films within that industry to follow. And then if you've seen the movie, you kind of go, why why would you make sequels to this? But the reason is because it's Hong Kong. You have to, and by like Long Arm of the Law 4, you've basically, you know, you, you just hit that point where they're just making these movies that have just kind of morphed into being pretty much just standard action movies. And it's like that, mm-hmm. that transitional kind of element along them as as the 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 broader political comment elements kind of like are flattened down to kick-ass gunfights um it's, it's just very emblematic i think of the hong kong uh system which is a system that produced some remarkable intelligent cinema but also was probably the most cravenly market-driven film industry on earth (laughs) you know um where you know where the the cinema owners would recut the movies to what they thought their audiences would like among (laughs) things, you know like just absolutely like if there was money to be made they would make it and just somehow even within that model they still produce these remarkable films so it's it's kind of funny you know because long arm the law is not a film that needs a sequel let alone three of them. But yeah, like you say, like by, by Long Arm of the Law 3, it's basically like an Andy Lau action movie, like superhero movie almost. It's a
1: yeah. very
2: very different tone. Well, and, and when we yeah. talk
0: about like, you don't need a sequel for this, it's it's literally baked into the film's DNA. Um, it, so Long Arm of the Law, just to, just to kind of give you a quick overview, it is not, it, it's, I don't think it's like, traditional in the sense of like you think of action movies is just kind of like bouncing from one explosive set piece to the next and and rest assured long arm of the law has some amazing set pieces uh including like a guy getting chucked like three stories uh high onto uh an ice rink and just kind of like his bloody body sliding along the ice which kicks ass uh there's an amazing uh chase sequence slash car chase sequence that looks incredibly unsafe and was 100% 100% shot without permits. I can say that unequivocally oh, without yeah. knowing. Uh, it just looks like, because everybody on the street just looks deeply confused as you know what's going on.
2: You, you made mention, so, Steve, earlier of, of the fact that Johnny Mac has only directed one movie. Like I say, we'll, we'll get into it, but yeah, there are reasons <laughs> to some degree why he, why he didn't come back for more. And one of yeah. them was that actors were maybe not willing to work with him.
0: <laughs> yeah, that seems, eh, that seems worth, reasonable. Worth it. But, oh yeah, totally worth it. Worth it. Totally. Yeah. But like the, the whole uh, just idea of this movie is it, it's deeply kind of like fatalist and pessimistic in the sense that you have these these criminals who are like, oh, we're trying to pull off a, a bit one last big job in Hong Kong so that we can, you know, fuck off and have all this money and, and not have to worry about things. Uh, and it's got this nice like political undertone of like, you know, if you go to Hong Kong, that's where you can really make some fucking money uh, as opposed to mainland China. And but like the whole undertone of the, of the whole thing is y- you're fucked. Like <laughs> all of these guys are <laughs> oh, yeah. just like they're they're kind of fuck ups. They're not great at what they do. And in the end, they all end up just just getting killed because they're they get overwhelmed they're in over their head they can't fucking handle this they're not you know the best criminals in the entire world and so the, the whole point of the movie is you're fucked and they're fucked so the idea that they all die at the end and they're like you know what we need we need another one of these <laughs> actually <laughs> we need four in total it's yeah, it's the, just kind of the- wild
2: overarching thesis of these films, I mean, politically speaking, we're looking at films that are kind of examining Hong Kong as an entity wedged between Great Britain, who owned Hong Kong as a colony, and mainland China, who obviously there's major cultural overlap between them. Hong Kong is a Chinese country. Um, And yeah, so like that's that's a strain between all of them is these three parties and Hong Kong effectively is powerless in between them. Uh, between China and and Great Britain, but yeah, I mean the overall thesis of all these films is basically yeah, none of the like, uh, China corrupt awful, Great Britain indifferent corrupt awful, Hong Kong police awful corrupt. Uh, yeah, you're pretty much you're screwed. Um, it's and it's kind of interesting. I mean, this film would take something of a sympathetic view actually to the the Chinese, the mainland Chinese, uh, gangsters who come over. You know, it's. They, they do a couple of really interesting things in this film. um like they they actually filmed in mainland China for part of secretly, which is really interesting like. you didn't do that. um and Johnny Mack had bolex cameras uh disassembled and had them smuggled piece by piece into mainland China and reassembled and he shot, I think like 16 mil footage. I think it was 16 mil um secretly, just a couple of shots here and there of just like life in mainland China in uh, I think it's in Guangzhou or or I'm not sure the name of the t- the southern province of China. Um so you have this view of a vision of like poverty, the real poverty of, of mainland China at that point, which really centers where these gangsters are coming from, these these criminals who are also ex-military. They're all ex-Chinese army, um which is kind of an important point as well. Um because that kind of associates him with the Cultural Revolution. Um, I think in the opening credits where they list, you know, there's like it opens with this like f- criminal ID information about like the main criminal and it's kind of like, you know, listing his career, you know, former, you know, army under the Red Army general, you know, or whatever sergeant who, who worked, you know, and guard the guarded a gate during the Cultural Revolution and so on, and then a list of all the crimes he's wanted for and how he's one of the top wanted criminals in Hong Kong. And, you know, it's kind of like this idea that there was these concerns, the Cultural Revolution, certainly from a Hong Kong perspective, was a massive failure in, in China and, you know, led to great misery and awfulness. Um, and so there were the concerns of China coming in. And what's interesting about, like, th- this film was so ahead of its time. I think whenever we talk about Hong Kong cinema, we're always talking about the specter of the handover, particularly the classic Hong Kong film mode was always about the 1997 handover of Hong Kong to Britain. Um and really, you know, any discussion of of classic Hong Kong cinema during this period, pretty much from the, the 80s to the 90s, was all about that tension. It's just, it always comes up. It's written into everything. Pretty much comedies, dramas, romances. Uh, it's, it's in everything. But what's really interesting is Longer Than Our Arm of the Law is so ahead of the time in 1982 that the 1997 date hadn't even been set then. That was mm-hmm. set in 84. That was when Britain actually had and set the agreement to basically return Hong Kong and surrounding areas to China. Um, So it's kind of like it, it it saw, it kind of saw it coming. And I mean, I had been discussed previously, Margaret Thatcher had visited China, mainland China earlier than that. So I think they saw the writing on the wall, Uh, the Hong Kong, you know, people kind of could see it coming, but yeah, it's like it got in before that. And it is a film all about, the tension between Hong Kong, Britain and China way waylaid mm-hmm. like that. So, but, you know, he did this incredible, like, um, rip from the headlines thing, which, which was what Johnny Mac did in television as well, apparently. Maybe he was very successful in television. And a lot of that was he did, like, rip from the headline stories. And Long Arm of the Law is that as well, because it was a genuine problem in Hong Kong was uh, mainland Chinese people basically coming, sneaking into Hong Kong for, like, smash and grab crime, and then getting sneaking back over because mm-hmm. it was just worth it. Like, the you know, it was just massively lucrative. China had an enormous amount of poverty. Hong Kong had plenty of wealth, particularly if you didn't have to pay for it. <laughs> you just yeah, go in with yeah. a gun and a hammer. Um, and yeah, so it was this real, it really captured something, I think, which is part of the reason. Like, this movie was also not only massively influential, but it was also actually like a huge commercial success as well. Which makes Mm -hmm. it even funnier that Johnny Mac never actually directed again. There are talks that maybe he ghost directed other films. He was heavily involved in other, like he wrote, and he obviously it's a Johnny Mac film production company. So like he was, his name was still on a lot of other movies, but he never he never actually directed again. He left that to his brother. um, But like it's (laughs) interesting because he really, yeah, he knocked it out of the park and was like, okay, you guys do it from here on in. I'll just stay behind the camera. I'll just uh, you know stay stay at the desk or whatever and just organized the money and worked very well for
0: him Mm -hmm. yeah it's one of the other interesting things i really loved about this and i mean it's kind of hilarious too but um not only was johnny mac kind of ahead of the curve but i i love the way that he frames up like people from hong kong versus mainland chinese people versus uh westerners specifically how he frames westerners Uh, Because in Long Arm of the Law, there's there's two types of of Westerners. There's uh, like hillbilly Americans (laughs) who are just like in the jewelry store. Like, oh, I said, I said, uh, how much is that uh, diamond (laughs) ring there? And, uh, you know, my friend was just here and uh, he got a better price for it. And they just come off as like complete blowhard morons. And then all of the british soldiers and and police officers that are on screen are all dumbass pussies and it's it's fucking awesome like
2: and and just cold-blooded murderers who in turn yeah, get murdered yeah. themselves yeah just, yeah it's it's yeah, really a little great little silver stuff. lining <laughs> <laughs>
0: um jake i i i want to i want to hear from you on this one too like what I, I i don't know like were you familiar with this before this week like how did you even come across this one cuz this is not like, thank God fucking 88 Films put out an amazing box set uh, because I, I just feel like this is so foundational and, uh, you know, probably due to my own ignorance, I, I had never gotten around to watching this one.
1: Yeah, well, that's that's almost That's exactly where I heard of this franchise is thanks to 88 Films. It's, uh, you know, we're, we're fans of physical media here at the O.V., and I think we all picked up this box set we're talking about. And I had never heard of the films before. But just when they were announced this set, people were going crazy for it. I did some research. I was like, oh, this looks this looks awesome. So, yeah, of course, I did like the Diabolik pre-order, all that good stuff. Got the set in. I saw, oh, there's two other films. Though. I wonder why those weren't included. And then when we were <laughs> just shopping for a... Uh, A topic for this week, uh, it came down to me to think of something and I thought, hey, you know what, we all own this. Why don't we talk about this these two films and then also watch the sequels? And yeah, it was, you know, made abundantly clear that uh the fourth film especially is not very Chinese friendly. Um, and I'll never see the light of day in high definition. But yeah, um going into it, Long Arm of the Law, this feels like in many ways the granddaddy of Hong Kong action cinema as we know it. It's it's raw, it's gritty, it's spectacularly violent the the climax is like one of the greatest things i've ever seen Mm -hmm. and then there's a very clear delineation between this and the sequels where as everyone notes on letterboxd or wherever that those were all made in a post better tomorrow world where everybody's got to hold two handguns they got to shoot through fish tanks jump through windows you know the action's Got to be flashier. It's got to be cooler. But yeah, as far as the original stands, that one is just—it's a, a real mean motherfucker of a movie, and mm-hmm. I and um, I I could not be more happy to have seen it.
2: Yeah. yeah, it's it's interesting the the John Woo connection because at this point, like the early '80s, John Woo was in like purgatory in the Hong Kong film industry. He'd made a couple of great martial arts movies, particularly um, what is it? Not Hand of Death. What's the other one? Last Shroud or Chivalry which is a great martial arts movie in the, the late 70s, but it was like a swordsman movie. And swordsman movies were like not that popular anymore. They kind of were felt to be a little old fashioned. And so he kind of got in John Woo and kind of got stuck doing rom-coms, which is extremely funny to watch <laughs> what this man would do. And it's like, yeah, you should be directing rom-coms. That makes sense. Um, and that was kind of what he was doing in the early 80s. Um, and then obviously this push through, He he decided like, what if I made a swordsman movie, but with, dudes holding two guns and shooting through fish tanks. And hey, presto, it turns out everyone fucking loved it and it was ingenious and uh, set his career right. But, you know, it's it's interesting that, yeah, he was, he, there's so much of what Zhang Wu would focus on in Long Arm of the Law, the first one, in terms particularly of the the brotherhood of these Chinese uh gangsters nominally and again it's interesting because they are gangsters they're criminals they're coming over but like i say they're also all ex-military they're also bonded by that there there's this kind of like idea that they are just that china cannot provide anything better for them at this point that it's it makes more sense for them to just you know do crime across the border and come back again um but yeah it's it's kind of interesting that there is this Uh, lineage from long arm of the law really is kind of a heroic bloodshed movie except the heroism's not really formulated in it it's it's really a very dour film um because it's it's very much kind of looking at everything as being a kind of a zero-sum game of failure like nothing is gonna work because everything is kind of corrupted um but it's yeah it's kind of like what strikes me about this cuz i saw long arm of the law uh, for the first time a couple of years ago at this stage not not too long ago cuz it was not a, it's not a film that i think had ever been particularly well known in the west but i picked it up a couple of years ago just like a digital file was circulating um i'd never seen the sequels prior to this um and it was like when i first saw long arm of the law it was it's like it's like the rosetta stone for Classic Hong Kong cinema, like for that that eighties, nineties golden era, it was like it was just like watching it being invented in front of my eyes. It was like it was actually kind of like seeing "Come Drink with Me," the King Hu film from the seventies to the wuxia genre, you know, and then Dragon Gate in. It's just like kind of like watching it and be like, holy shit, this is where every like this is what it all comes back to. It's remarkable. Um, and it's it's similar, like, if, if you were a fan of, of Dragon in or Come Drink With Me and that kind of, like, style and its influence, Long Arm of the Law is that for that kind of crime caber, like, crime thriller that that Hong Kong does so well. But yeah, um, a part of what really strikes me in this film that is absolutely incredible is the action sequences and the scale of them and the fact that Steve mentioned that Johnny Mac absolutely did not get permits for Anything and there's Thought no itself. sets in this. There, there's no sets used in this film. Everything was shot on location. So we have a botched jewel robbery near the start of the film, and it is, I think, one of the most electrifying sequences I've ever seen in film. Uh, like it's, it's certainly, you know, like the French Connection, the car chase has very much got that energy, and he shot that in just fucking crowded street in mm-hmm. like Sim Chim Cha Choi. You know, it's just like this really. Big kind of uh, market, you know, commercial zone in Hong Kong. The streets are filled with people. And um, there's an interview with Michael Mack on the um, the 88 films of blue where he talks about how they shot it, which was essentially first uh, didn't tell anyone. And second, they just had the cameramen in various places disguised, like hidden around the street and what they would do, basically, they had people up on buildings, kind of giving the general direction, like spotting the flow of of the actors. And basically, you know, it's a bunch of you know, it's a bunch of police chasing the the gang members who who are in in like a vision of how dark this film is. They are going to Hong Kong to rob a jewelry store, and they fail in their first attempt to do so because someone else is robbing the jewelry store at that time. Like that's how <laughs> that's how bad things are. So. The, but the police spot them think they're suspicious they run everyone follows and you you can just see it's just like everyone on the street and this is packed streets traffic driving through um you know people have no idea what's going on like they as far as they know this is the police chasing real suspects and there's gunfire and stuff uh, the lead actor gets hit by a car in the middle of the scene he gets knocked over mm-hmm. by a car that was not scripted he was hit by a car but accidentally. Okay. And he was able and he was able to just get up and keep running, and it's in the movie. Uh there were cameramen hidden, so when they moved a certain area, some guy in a walkie-talkie would be like, Hey, start filming, like it's your go, and the cameraman would sneak out from cover and grab the next piece of footage. You mm. know, and it it's it's one of those things unimaginable, but like Hong Kong did this a lot, Hong Kong Cinema did, because getting permits was next to impossible. And it's a small place. I don't know how they must have done this other than maybe bribes like i don't know because you'd think this would yeah, be impossible just to work <laughs> there's <laughs> oh yeah yep. yeah but but it is it is absolutely electrifying sequence like there's just this this intensity to it that is absolutely incredible and it carries through the rest of the film because then, then the film becomes this kind of like they're stuck in hong kong they've good they didn't get to do their jewelry robbery so they're looking for other work so they meet up with their fence who kind of assigns him another job, which turns out to be a hit job on an undercover cop, which, guess what, that doesn't go well for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it it's really becomes that tension between these, these country bumpkins nominally, which is also kind of an interesting thing you'll see a lot in Hong Kong cinema, is that, like, in, in the 80s in Hong Kong, mainland Chinese were seen very much as, like, country bumpkins. They were seen as, you know, kind of, like, crude, stupid, like, farmers. Um, and that's I—I th- I believe I've heard that's almost completely inverse now. That you know, mainland Chinese consider Hong Kong to be kind of like out in the provinces, sort of like you know, bless their hearts, kind of thing. But um, <laughs> but still, when they come over, there's very much this kind of feeling of um, you know, like uh, they they come over in desperation, and the film latches onto the desperation; it understands it. Um And their yeah. efforts like to be there. They're kind of wooed by Hong Kong, by all of its material elements. Also, this is a Christmas movie. So put this one on your, your <laughs> annual watch list. Uh, you, That's you got, right. One of the fair, rare Boom. films that have was Santa Claus and Chuck E. Cheese in it, uh, yeah, the, yeah. in costume, getting harassed by a man. Um, I think the
0: third one's a Christmas movie, too, but two think, and yes. four
2: aren't. <laughs> yeah, no, you, you, got, you got to temper it somehow. Christmas, of course, being one of the most commercial holidays, it's, it's a nice touch, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And certainly, for, since you know, I don't think China celebrates Christmas particularly. So I imagine coming over from the crippling poverty of Cultural Revolution era China to uh, fucking Christmas in Hong Kong must be really <laughs> a pretty <laughs> wild head trip. Um, yeah, yeah. But you know, it's, it's that tension of you know the lure. You know, do we do the crime and go back? But like even if we come back rich, it's we're gonna be living in poverty. Like all around mm-hmm. us, it's still gonna be poverty. And it's 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 really interesting in the film that kind of like really pulls that apart and looks at it and it considers where everyone lies in this. And eventually, of course, it it comes out to the fact that like really everyone's kind of trapped by their fate in this, in the same way yeah. that Hong Kong is trapped, because the people of Hong Kong never voted to become a British colony. They also never voted to be handed back to mainland China. Neither of those things were in their, their purview. Those things were just done by grander governments during various treaties. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it's a film about political machinations um, and hopelessness and powerlessness set against some of the most visceral action sequences you've ever seen in your life.
0: Yeah, and, and it's, it's that balance that I think makes it special, too, because y- you do, you have these incredibly violent, like, clearly only partially scripted you know kind of shoot from the hip okay we've got one take for this kind of action scenes uh that are just electrifying but then the other side of that is most of this movie it's it's not that crazy action it's it's just kind of a hangout movie (laughs) (laughs) but that's but that's what makes the action so much better you know it's it's that back and forth and that tension between those two things that that really makes it special uh but yeah it, it it wasn't what i expected especially once you get to two three and four because as you mentioned there is a world that is pre and post better tomorrow and once you get to two three and four you you lose a lot of those just hanging out with the guys yeah elements. they're much
2: more on rails and <laughs> yeah this one does a lot yeah
1: more. there's even just like a nice little scene where like after they lose one of their guys early on and they're just kind of like palling around, hanging out in the office, and he's he's like in an urn. They have his remains that gets involved in this like little wrestling. But yeah, all that that sort of brotherhood kind of vanishes, and it's something more mechanical in the sequels. But yeah, the mm-hmm. uh, you know it's it's these guys are you know deep down they're they, they're friends. They went through all this together, and they die together, and it's really it's really tragic and sad.
2: Yeah, yeah. so so Steve, talk about why another reason why Johnny Mac perhaps never directed again. So we, we are familiar mm-hmm. with the scene where they realize that their, their uh, fence has maybe ratted them out to the cops. So to intimidate them, they tie him up in this car and they set the car on fire. And they then do put out the car again. They just wanted to intimidate him, right? But what if I were to tell you that the actor in that car, who was in that car the whole time... Did not know they were going to set it on fire, because <laughs> that's exactly what was done. Johnny Mac decided he wanted that to look real. He wanted his actor to look real scared, so he told him they were just going to tie him up in the car. He did not mm. tell him anything about they are going to set the car on fire, and reportedly <laughs> they nearly killed him because interesting fact: if you uh, set a car on fire. Um, and there's someone in the car, fire burns up all the oxygen in the surrounding areas. So the guy mm. nearly suffocated in the car, even, oh. you know, without being burnt. You know, it was like... So so that was the thing. Apparently, uh, there was some talk after this. I don't think it's ever something that's been exactly confirmed, but there is some discussion of, did Johnny Mac never direct again because no actor wanted to work with him? Because <laughs> <It's laughs> he possible. tried to murder people? Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> on, on the flip side, that actor, I believe, did get a Best Supporting Actor uh, gong in the Taiwanese, I think, Golden Horse Awards that year. Mm-hmm. So... Um, yeah, so you, you, know, know, particularly, you know, art, that's man. that's exactly it. You know, like sometimes you've just got to nearly die. Um sorry, Hong Kong <laughs> Film Awards, not not the golden horse. But yeah, um yeah, you know, sometimes somebody you just gotta nearly die in a car for a film, but you get an award at the end, and that's pretty sweet.
0: Yeah. Well, it's a good trade-off. Uh yeah, I guess like transitioning to the sequels, um and it's funny too, because I watch all three of the sequels kind of back to back to back, and they've all sort of like Uh, blended into one movie for me um but i i gotta say like right off the bat all of these are extremely fucking entertaining but so starkly different from the original yes and it, it kind of like kicks into that immediately because uh one of my favorite scenes from any of the sequels is the beginning of part two where it's kind of established um, it uses the same sort of framing device as the first movie where it almost feels like you're playing like a fighting game where (laughs) it's just like freeze frame on this criminal and then it's just like text scrolling along the side telling you all of his cool stats of you know doing (laughs) crime but in this case it was just like okay you've got these four guys and they're in prison and the cops are like all right we're gonna let you out of prison because you, you gotta you gotta do undercover shit for us so we're letting you out and here's a, here's here's some wigs <laughs> and then the next scene is just like them at a buffet one of them is trying to eat like a, a lobster that's made out of plastic and they're all wearing ridiculous wigs uh which are then the wigs are then like retired and never spoken of again but uh
2: yeah, they don't they yeah. don't need the wigs anymore. Yeah, it, a, a
0: bit two, of a contrast.
2: <laughs> yes, yes. Two introduces uh, Elvis Choi as well, who will becomes I guess the star, the, the the franchise's main star after this, excusing Andy Lau up and coming in in part three. But mm-hmm. Elvis Choi is a major role in all of the three sequels, playing completely different characters each time. There's no yeah. continuity, and this in this case he's kind of the hero of the film as a. Mainland Chinese criminal who has been co-opted to work undercover in Hong Kong to kind of break up other mainland Chinese criminal activities, and yeah, it's um certainly I think like you said I think very very entertaining film. It's got some great set pieces in it, but it is very much cut from a different cloth. And this is of course is directed by um by Michael Mack. The three all three sequels are Michael Mack became the guy, um and so it's it's just kind of like um got weight, like weighing up the films it's it's just sort of difficult because right off the bat like i'm trying to think like what what's the main thing of this film i feel like the 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 catch of this film was almost that hong kong is almost like more corrupt than mainland china in this movie like these soldiers yeah. have this bond of of you know their their military service or the fact they've all been co-opted like and forced to be undercover agents they have this um kind of bond, which extends to the one Hong Kong undercover cop who's supervising them, and it's almost... Um, there's there's definitely kind of an element here to it as well, to, you know, Infernal Affairs and also The Departed, ultimately. Mm-hmm. like I think that the final shot, actually, of the first uh, Long Arm the Law is really interesting, because firstly, our guys get, um, get ratted out, literally by a rat. <laughs> literally, <Yeah>. they're all <laughs> hiding out, and a literal rat is making noise. And the police who may or may not know the guys they're looking for are there. It's actually not particularly even known, but they just strafe the place with bullets and just murder everyone, including the rat. There's a shot of the dead rat having been like riddled with bullet holes and and dripping blood. And it just struck me that Martin Scorsese has seen this movie like fucking sure. I mean, he's seen every movie anyway, but, you know, he remade the Infernal Affairs, which is kind of a peon to... Undercover agents and you know the the mixed up moral codes of that, and the departed was his kind of you know Christian version of that Catholic version of of an Asian story originally, but I think it all originates back that final shot of the departed with the rat going across the banister over like whatever capitol hill um it's It's the same kind of you know element here you know the the like the the bloodied rash it's a similar <laughs> thing like it's all the rats all the way down, and I think part two has an element of that as well it's like the undercover cops realize that they are basically trapped in between everyone else they're they're dis dispend- like whatever you say dispensable you know kind of they can be shot or killed by anyone. It doesn't really matter
0: mm-hmm. yeah and i I like the second one too because it, uh, the third and the fourth definitely veer off into totally different territory mm-hmm. um and i I feel bad. Saying uttering this in the same breath is as Long Arm of the Law, but there's a certain element of uh, the Wild Things sequels to <laughs> Long Arm of the Law too, where it it really does feel like, and it's not a bad movie. It's just this. It's like oh, this is like dumb guy Long Arm of the Law. <laughs> you know, even down to the fact that the the end of, of the second movie, it it feels very similar, like kind of claustrophobic. Um, apartment complex alleyways final shootout um, and and then just the absurdity of you know I, I, I got to die for my, my homies and then just all these people are riddled with bullets and one of the final shots is just our quote-unquote hero uh, literally just on fire <laughs> just covered in bullet (laughs) holes and it's it's so fucking over the top and it 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 really is kind of a a weird foil to uh what i would say is a a much more somber (laughs) original film ending but
2: yeah yeah there's there's still a lot of location shooting in long arm of the law too but there's i think some sets thrown in and certainly it feels like they weren't it doesn't feel dangerous like the first one does Mm -hmm. um but it does still have, like, absolutely insane... There's a sequence where they shake down the dude at his own birthday party is fucking amazing. Um, who has got this, like, the worst dude ever who's hosting a birthday party for his elderly mother solely so he can just pocket all the money they gave her as a present. <laughs> and he's being awful <laughs> to everyone. So they basically raid it with, with guns and they, they cue up the drummer. They just tell the drummer to, like, start playing. There's, like, a band on location and they're like, drummer, drum. And he starts, like... He doesn't just, like, do, like, a regular, just, like, snare roll or something. No, like he just starts busting out this insane thing. Like, <laughs> this, this, like the drummer had been living for this his whole life. This is, like, this is what it all comes down to. And starts doing this thing, and then they just bring him up on stage and, like, shake him down and then, like, shoot him a little bit. and just a little mm-hmm. bit. This is this is a movie with gradations of getting shot from, like, you know, a little bit to a very lot. And, yeah. you know, later on, they get shot a lot.
0: <laughs> well, and this one also... And I don't know if this was like a conscious decision of, you know, let's let's make it meaner and and scuzzier, but like about halfway through, uh, it's got like a pretty intense torture sequence.
1: Oh, Uh, yeah, yeah,
2: (laughs) Yeah. that's it's
1: it's (laughs) very, very just grotesque and seems to come out of nowhere. Like, I mean, Mm -hmm. the film is violent, but then a guy is chewed up by a rat and then he gets beheaded while hanging upside down with a fucking axe. Mm. it's like whoa oh holy shit movie <laughs> yeah calm down here for a second and, and yeah, it's while not, he's it's like not hanging strike.
0: there while he's hanging there with the rats like it's literally like a bag of rats that they put over his head and then there's this scene where like they they take the bag off of his head and he like spits a fucking rat at the guy's face like a live rat
2: yeah a bit that he yeah. bit off of one of the rats he like bites off the yeah. rat's tail and then spits the rest of the rat on him yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. when he gets decapitated it's like three or four strikes with the axe. It's not like one clean blow like a nicer Yo. movie might do. Like it's <laughs> fucking gnarly. Which you know, yeah. I mean this is the Hong Kong special, right? It's like you just, you know, you cruise along and everything's a bit over the top or whatever and then suddenly it'll just like dip its toe into like the most fucked up thing you've ever seen and just be mm-hmm. like, yeah, yeah, you you expecting that? No, you weren't." <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Um so if, if this one is a little dumber than the original and, and a little meaner and uh, just more grotesque violence at certain points. I I think like three and four is when we really get into just full blown, like John Woo worship basically. Uh, But I, I gotta say the opening of three is fucking awesome it's just like oh this guy has been wrongly convicted of a crime and is facing capital punishment and uh you you get this like bizarre it's not even like a prison break because he's being executed in what looks like a gravel pit somewhere and he he's <laughs> able to escape and it's uh i don't know it's 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 just a fucking awesome way to start a movie Um uh, and, and then of course it it Kind of devolves from there into uh, again uh, very stupid but very entertaining, I guess.
2: Yeah, it's uh, three is yeah. interesting because because if part one, the thing about like part one, it's some it may not be as notable to Western audiences is that there was really only there were no known actors in it. There was one or two relatively established actors, but they weren't stars, and then pretty much everyone else in the movie is. Pretty much was it's like it's either debut role and in a lot of cases it's their only role or their only one of two roles. Like they were not professional established actors at the time. And Johnny Mack did that because he wanted the film to have that kind of like quasi-realistic element. You know, it wouldn't work with stars. You know, it would be a very different movie. Long Arm of the Law 3 demonstrates that by having fucking Andy Lau in the lead role as, you know, and at this point he was already well-established as a leading man. Um... And yeah, within like three minutes of the start of the movie, he's sentenced to death by because he's been implicated in smuggling uh, by his friends, by his goofy friends. It's almost like comedic the way that they just kind mm-hmm. of barrel in. It's like, oh, oh, give us hide us, and then nasty Elvis Choi playing the chief villain this time around um, shows up and and he's sentenced to death, and they bring him out to the firing squad, and I, I have no idea if the firing squad scene is, is, like, realistic at all, but, like, it appears that a Chinese firing squad is, like, they just run a train on you with guns. Like, everyone just <laughs> comes up and shoots you once, which is, I don't know if that's how they do that. That seems like a fucking pretty mean-spirited way to do a firing squad, which is not a particularly kind uh, institution to begin with. But I I don't think it is because they still have everyone standing in a row with rifles behind them and then they still just shoot a bunch of dudes like a couple of times with pistols. But Mm anyhow, Andy Lau escapes and he has to go to, he smuggles himself out to Hong Kong and he's basically, it's a love story. This one has like a a woman he meets along the way that he falls in love with and it basically, it's it's heroic, clean cut Andy Lau fights against the bad guys to rescue the woman of his dreams and have a happy life. Um, And it's, Yeah, at this point, we are in completely different waters to the first film. At this point, we're really in a a very slick Hong Kong film mode, you know?
0: Mm. Yep. And it's got the, uh, you know, the the classic, okay, we got, everybody's got two pistols, we're flying through glass, slow motion, etc., 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 which is fine, but... You know, it's it, it feels like when we were watching a few weeks ago when we were watching those those uh, <laughs> fake hard boiled sequels where you're like, I. Th- it's it's so detached from the original long arm of the law. By the time you get to part three, you're like, I this is the most in name only shit I have ever seen in my entire fucking life. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I was actually going to bring up the last blood in relation to part four of this. Yeah, I think there's definite parallels to be drawn.
0: Mm hmm. I do want to talk about part four because. As we mentioned, uh, you know, there's there's a really nice eighty-eight films uh box set of the first two movies. They both they look great. There's a shitload of special features, like totally awesome. Um, if you have any interest at all in Hong Kong action films, like just just get it. You don't you don't need to know shit about shit. I mean just you have
2: it. the first film is pivotal, fundamental. Mm-hmm. You have to watch it yeah. if you want, you know.
0: Yeah. Now, I, I could see a world where we get a high definition release of of the third film like that seems within the realm of reason however uh you know it, you, you watch that and you go huh I'm, I'm surprised this wasn't included the moment that the fourth film starts it is abundantly clear that it will never ever ever see the light <laughs> of day in in a home video release of any sort um it, it's just like if you were to make a checklist of, of things that like the mainland chinese government does not want people watching uh it, it's like a greatest hits right
2: yeah it's basically like opening it just shouting out Tiananmen Square and that's like okay <laughs> yeah, that's this is never happening this you know we've got a dvd copy circulating online and you know it doesn't look terrible and i'd say that's that is probably the best we're ever gonna do um yeah yeah it's uh, ver- very much uh yeah, that it's not happening. I was wondering when it came out at first, I was like, you know, man it's was, it was a shame that if, if 88 films couldn't get all of them. And there there is a HD version of Part 3 in Asia, which that one has which is kind of interesting because, you know, all all three of them are not exactly, or all four of them, but like the first three are not exactly like, happy about China, but I guess they're mutually cynical, so it kind of works. But Part Four's acknowledgement of uh, the Tiananmen Square massacre coupled with just generally, I mean part four, the the mainland Chinese villains are the most villainous villains to ever do villainy. Like it's fucking mm. Penelope Pitstop shit. Like they're just <laughs> monsters. Um and yeah, part four is wild, because it's really just um and I I I think part four is the only one that I would say is kind of Maybe a bad movie, you know, like maybe doesn't quite work as well as the others. The others, they're all very entertaining. Even part four is still honestly pretty entertaining. I wouldn't go too hard on it. But it is a film that basically tries to mesh, you know, kind of like real governmental diplomatic intrigue. Uh, It tries to mesh that with like five of the biggest gunfights you've ever seen. And it's just like and, and it is like we, you know, you mentioned The Last Blood and we were talking about those hard boiled unofficial sequels this movie is like, Long Arm of the Law 4 is, like, The Last Blood, in that it's basically, like, mainland China invades Hong Kong, but it doesn't really invade it, and we're supposed to take all the political machinations seriously, while an army of mainland Chinese spies, like, basically get all their guns together, and, like, fucking launch military assaults on a place to kill, uh, uh, you know, an, an escaped, kind of, what, what would you say, um, defecting agent, and it's just, mm. like, it's lunacy, and I mean, we say all of these films share a certain a certain thematic element in that they are all about, you know, Hong Kong and that balance of power between various foreign powers. Uh, part four doesn't really it's, it's about that, too. But it's it's uh it doesn't really add any new element to it in the way that two and three kind of have their own respective spins of like two is kind of like goes behind the, you know, kind of they go and undercover their police agents now or operate, opera, you know, they they kind of work for the police which kind of gives mm. almost more cynicism to that element of it. And then in part three, it's very much like a, you know, it's it's very, it's very a very streamlined action movie, but Andy Lau is a very personable fellow. That's one of the reasons he's such a huge star. Uh, part four is very much just like crazy villainy. Elvis Choi returns as the hero again, um, <laughs> and it, it's just like batshit insane movie, but then every so often they slow it down. It's like the... British agents and, and the Chinese are going to discuss politics now and it's kind of like this is absolutely incredulous. <laughs> like, none of, <laughs> none of this makes any sense and eventually they're just like, we're just going to pretend none of this happened for the good of both of our nations. It's like, yeah, that's what would happen if, like I say, if like a hundred armed mainland Chinese soldiers fucking machine gunned the main business district or whatever it's like the, I think other countries <laughs> yeah. would notice this <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh absolutely uh, a, lot Jake- of, a lot of questions about are our, our the copy of four and three kind of had some weird subtitle things going on and one thing I wrote down is there's this uh, like board meeting with uh, the Chinese officials and the, these British officials and this you know we have our stereotypical white English guy talking at one point he says he shouts, barbarian fuck, and then the, tri- <laughs> the subtitle says, shit, Chinese people. Yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Didn't we cover
1: that in what he said already? But all right, yeah, translate
2: that, I guess. We, we um, are very much at the, yeah, the, the behest of, of Chinese, of Hong Kong subtitlers who... Very interesting how, you know, I mean, in one way, we're so lucky that everything by law had to have English subtitles provided. But who boy did they kind of work with their own version of English for a lot of them? (laughs) Yeah, I think uh, a
0: friend of the show, Dylan, uh, he would probably have a fucking heart attack if he... (laughs) Saw the
2: versions of 3 and 4 that oh, we God. saw. <laughs> 3 yeah. three was okay. 4 is very much like, um, alright then. Uh, we we'll yeah. get, we'll get <laughs> the message four, generally.
1: 4 four is definitely a mess, but the, the climax of that one still has a few banger moments in it. Like, there's a mm-hmm. part where our, our villain, who's just like mean general guy, he grabs one of the heroes and then starts shooting through his back, and then these amazing squibs blow out of his chest. And I'm like, oh, OK, yeah, that's really cool. But yeah, like Jack said, in the end, it, they're all, they all just get swarmed by 100 Chinese soldiers with guns and just get mowed down. And that's like you can't there's no escaping it. It's ultimately mm-hmm. it's it's uh, it's a fool's game to, to
2: try to do so. And yeah, it's all it's all for naught. Mm-hmm. We, we should add for Long the Law 4. Not only does it open with Tiananmen Square uh, footage aftermath of that, um, it's also the story is literally about um, smuggling democracy protesters out of China to Hong Kong. So, yeah, yeah again, you're you're never going to see this. <laughs> it's just, no, no. This I, ain't it's coming like, anywhere. If you
0: got like a, a, a fucking like government thumbs up for an edited version of this movie. It would literally be all of the story and dialogue cut out of it. And it's just just the shooting. That's it. That's all you get. Cause it's just, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's like you get three of the five action sequences, and it is twenty minutes long, and that's the whole film. That's that's all you get. Um, yeah, but yeah. So I
2: uh, uh, highly recommend has-
0: pirating this.
2: Uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, d- d- I don't yeah, think we hurt or- anyone's feelings to pop this one up online for download no, because uh, no. I don't think anyone's going to be vying for the rights for this.
0: No, absolutely not. Yeah. Um. So, Jake, I'm I'm curious because for me, it's like. I don't know. Like like 2, 3 and 4 were all kind of on the same level for me whereas like the first one was just just incredible. Do you have out of out of all the the sequels, do you have a favorite?
1: I like uh, uh you know obviously yes, the first one Unimpeachable can't can't be beat. The but of the next 3, I think I like the third one the most of those. It's uh it's largely just a set piece generator like you mm-hmm. go from that opening escape from the execution that immediately goes into uh, there's he finds his love interest, but she's working as a prostitute. He goes to her brothel. Then there's this giant hallway fight, which one guy pulls out like a wireless boat motor and tries to <laughs> propel him to death. In this that goes into this cool jewel store heist. And then that which then there's a boatyard chase where our hero is jumping from boat to boat to try to get into a boat that has the woman. And then there's this cool nightclub. Anyways, a lot of great action, some good melodrama. I like it. I think I found the third one to be more entertaining than the second one at least in regards to its wooisms. Mm-hmm. But um yeah, I say definitely watch the first 3 and uh, I'm sure Jack is going to make the fourth one available on Twitter or something. We'll yeah. we'll retweet yeah, that we'll, for we'll you all. Watch, watch, watch yeah. them all, but I I can't I cannot undersell this uh the 88 films box set. If you are thinking about getting it, please pull the trigger and do so. Yeah. It's worth it just for the first film alone. It, it is quite an outstanding accomplishment. I'm going to say and, if you're not uh, yeah. thinking
0: about getting it, just fucking get it anyways. Like, <laughs> get it? Yeah. <laughs> just buy
1: it for your next Secret Santa or whomever. It's, yeah. it's, it's loaded with so much cool stuff in it. and I, I can't recommend it enough. Mm. And that's what I'm putting over this week. I like that. <laughs> no, I like kidding. that. <laughs> but, uh, Seamless.
0: <laughs> Seamless. Yeah. Jack, do you, do you have a favorite from the sequels? I feel like I'm the only person who's, who's really going to bat for four which I, I will readily admit is the weakest, but I still love it because just the audacity of it as like a dumb, cheap action film that is sure. also like...
2: <laughs> I, think, I think all of them have to be like, uh, in terms of favorite sequel, you have to examine them separate of the shadow or the first film. And I think mm-hmm. I, like, I, I agree with Jake. I think three is just a very slick Andy Lau vehicle and it kind of works very well in that mode and there's a lot of great action it's kind of it's it's certainly the easiest sell to a casual hong kong film fan four mm. is just i just struggle with its craziness <laughs> but it is crazy and that's often reason enough to watch it and it does have like hong kong cinema some of the best villains you'll ever see and the villain in this one i mean he hangs a baby out a window he's fucking mm. shooting people and Oh, left right and center at one point the hong kong government tell him he has to leave right and he says they can't make him do that because he has diplomatic immunity which is not how that works <laughs> <laughs> he's like no i have diplomatic immunity you can't make me leave and it's like i know that's not what that is at all and then he assembles a team of machine gun men to wreak havoc everywhere uh, yeah. yeah it's it's a very entertaining film i'm not gonna mm. i'm not gonna paid on it much. I was just like am I meant to take this scene of discussion of like the the foibles of powerlessness between China and Hong Kong very seriously <laughs> after the aforementioned hanging a baby out a window and a man claiming diplomatically the people who gave him immunity he's immune from them. That's Donald Trump 101 right there. Um yeah. maybe he's a fan of this movie.
0: <laughs> you never know, man. Uh I I don't know. I I I think Trump would probably like three the best, just because I know, what was it? I think he, like, was it Bloodsport is is one of his favorite fan movies? Of
2: well, you know, he likes he likes Bloodsport, but maybe that might bring him back. Was it Bloodsport or Kickboxer that actually shot in the Kowloon Walled City, which is where oh, the finale of the first film takes place, which is a yeah. really interesting location. I didn't realize until recently Kowloon Walled City is actually, was essentially, uh, a completely sovereign zone. It wasn't run by Hong Kong, it wasn't run by the British, it wasn't run by China. It was just its own fucking thing. It its own fucking thing. Um what? yeah, and and they filmed in there, which you know, was risky enough because when when a it place is its own thing, what that really means is that the triads ran an enormous amount of stuff out of there like mm. prostitution and drug trafficking, etc. but yeah, um, all the good yeah. stuff. But certainly Long Arm of the Law is if you want to see Kowloon Walled City, it's probably one of the best and most hands-on, like, actually on location. I think it's Bloodsport they shoot in there a little bit. And then Jackie Chan in 93 made Crime Story, which is not a typical Jackie Chan film and maybe not a great film overall. But one thing that is interesting about it is it shoots its uh, finale is in the Kowloon Walled City, and it's a pretty incredible finale. But that was because they had actually vacated the entire city, the... Hong Kong government had finally was getting around to demolishing it because at this point it was probably wildly unsafe. I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. packed in. It's it's you look at it it's like literally tiny alleyways everywhere. Like this is a fire marshal would fucking have a heart attack looking at it. It's horrifying. <laughs> but you know there were thousands of people living in there. But they vacated it in 1993, I believe, to demolish it. Mm-hmm. But prior to demolishing it, Jackie Chan and his cohorts looked in and said that'd be a fucking great place to shoot a finale, and they blew up i don't know how much it was left to be demolished after they were done honestly they bombed <laughs> they bombed the hell out of it. that place um so yeah that, that's your your thing long arm of the law blood sport crime crime story there's your your yeah, yeah. city trio
0: although like trump's whole thing though with blood sport i think is he it's his favorite movie but he he fast forwards past all the dialogue just to get to the fighting so yeah i, don't I, know, I think
2: he stops for the parts where like john nerd like van damme like it all slicked up and maybe you know showing off his biceps i feel like i feel like donald trump has has an appreciation for a man just being a man
0: <laughs> just guys yeah, being dudes he,
1: <laughs> he might like the scenes in the first and second one where the guys just sit down and eat mcdonald's together i mean oh yeah. that He's a fan.
2: He, that's true he he ordered his great party around that it'd be lovely
0: <laughs> i just think it like the i mean you know obviously uh n- not a great guy but like you got to go to bat for Trump's McDonald's order he just gets like a fucking extra large diet coke and he gets a fillet of fish and a big mac and he takes off all the buns and he just mashes it all into like a fucking slop bucket and they just fucking eats it that's just i mean, I mean
2: yeah i mean uh, that I, in the w- photo of him with the full catered McDonald's amazing. lunch at the white house is yes frankly they should make that the flag of the united states <laughs> <laughs> no reason why uh, that to. is
1: such a powerful image. You, I don't think no no president can come along and top that in, no. in in our time at least. That's it's certifiably insane and yet brilliant.
0: Yeah, it's it's really good. It's one of, one of the greatest of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, Jake, what are you putting over this week?
1: Yeah, I'm excited to say I'm putting over a book um, and then before you say, oh, I don't have time to read, well, don't Greetings worry, it's a light read, it's got a lot of cool photos in it, um, but uh, I'm putting over a book called In the Secret Service of James Bond, uh, it follows a Swiss stuntman named Stefan Zucker, who when he was in his early 20s in 1968, answered an ad in his local newspaper in Switzerland saying that there's a new James Bond film in town and they needed some crazy skiers, quote-unquote, to shoot some mountain stuff. And uh, he went up and they impressed the Broccoli family and they basically they filmed him in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And then that uh, basically kicked off a career for him in Hollywood. And he just had been working nonstop since. He was a stuntman, I bought a double for uh, Robert Redford and Downhill Racer. He would basically be called in for any of the, uh, anytime there was snow in a Bond movie, they would say, get the snowman. And that's who he was. (laughs) And uh, yeah, he had an incredible career and I was able to interview him for Film Inquiry. He regaled me with a lot of great stories on set. But yeah, check out the book In the Secret Service of James Bond about Stefan Zerker, Z-U-R-C-H-E-R, and you'll have a good time.
0: All right. Jack, what are you putting over this week?
2: I'm going to put over two things quickly. First off, wow. cuz taking up my whole month. <laughs> uh, I'm just putting over Yakuza Kiwami the first game because I just played through it and it's the best thing ever. Uh you can tell it's a really great game because it's like like easily 50% combat and that combat's the worst I've ever played. It's terrible, but I still love this game because everything else is so great in it cuz basically like all the games it's 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 you know It's a Yakuza intrigue, but mostly it's me just beating up children at arcade games and then teaching them life lessons based on it. I love that so much. So (laughs) if you don't play the Yakuza games, you should play all of them. They're amazing. I love them. And then as an aside, I'm just also going to put over Radiance Films because I just got a box uh, of movies from them with The Sting of Death, uh, I the Executioner, and Goodbye and Amen. Uh, All deep cuts movies I have never seen before. Radiance are pretty new. They're by Francesco Simeone, who used to work for Arrow. He was in Arrow from the early days. And I think he's departed um, to basically set up a new label and really focus on, I think, what he's more interested, which is an international kind of... uh, art genre cinema it's not like really like art house necessarily but you know much more interesting than that and particularly asian cinema and they have a lineup of asian films from china and japan that are just mouth-watering it's incredible plus rivets lamore foo coming i would say they are probably the most exciting english language film label right now and i really hope they can continue like that they remind me of masters of cinema when they first set out just like every month it's like Fucking movies from directors you've literally never heard of before, or you've kind of heard of, but you've never had an op- opportunity to see one of their films before. Um, and they've done some great stuff. They've released some Anhui films. They've released um, a Moment of Romance. So like they're Hong Kong friendly too. So I really hope that they keep at it because they are amazing. So Radiance Films just throw money at them. Go.
0: So wait, Ra- Radiance. When they put it, when you said Sting of Death, you, you don't mean the like nineteen. 19- 70s horror movie about the half man half jellyfish right
2: i i do not know i, I mean uh okay. i mean kohei oguri's uh 90s japanese drama doesn't uh, very, sound as good to me you know i for all i know it could be a remake i have no idea there could be a big fuck off jellyfish in this movie i've never seen it before i just bought it on on an impulse because oh. i am a sucker for for asian movies well so, we're just gonna
0: have to do a we're gonna have to do a sting of death Cast Man, imagine we, uh, if, imagine if there track. is
2: a killer jellyfish in it. I will be mm-hmm. like, oh wow, Steve I mean, was right.
0: Yeah, well you know, Steve Steve usually is right. And let me tell you what I'm right about this week. Uh, I watched <laughs> a wonderful film on a little service called Tubi, and it stars Robert Downey Jr. and James Spader from the Year of Our Lord 1985, and it's called Tough Turf. And tough is of course spelled T U F F you know as as it should be and it's it's just it's so fucking great because it is a it's a it's a lost genre which is uh you know uh, misbehaving teens you know teens doing crime uh whipping out their switchblades and waving them around and yeah it's it's just it's fucking fantastic it's it's kind of in that mold of like class of 1984 or um maybe to a lesser extent but you know, there's a lot of these in the 1950s, so I, I always think of Ed Wood's uh, Violent Years, which is uh, one of my all-time favorites.
2: Amazing um, movie.
0: <laughs> but yeah, basically, like, James Spader is this, you know, he's this East Coast kind of preppy kid, but his dad loses his job. And and when you lose your job and you live in, like, a fancy house in Connecticut, what do you do? And the answer in 1985 is you move to Los Angeles, you become a cab driver. Sure. Uh, but basically... You know, James Spader, uh, he, he kind of uh, brushes up against the wrong crowd. And uh, it's this kind of escalating violence between James Spader and this, uh, this gang of, of ne'er-do-well teens. And it's fucking awesome. Uh, also, it does another thing that I really respect in any movie. And, uh, you know, sometimes you ask yourself, how do I pad the runtime of my cheapy exploitation film? And the answer is always... Uh, musical performances just like 30 minutes worth worth of concert footage just kind of sprinkled in throughout and you'll you'll hit that 90 minute mark no Hopefully problem that so. new
2: year's evil lever huh hell yeah
0: brother uh so yeah highly highly recommended it's such it, it, you know how like you, you watch certain movies i always think of, like basket case too when i think about like what does it mean to be a, a new york exploitation film that's just very of a time period and tough turf is the same way. Uh, I I think Valley girl is, is another good example of that, but just that, that 1980s kind of LA vibe nails it. Absolutely fucking nails it. So, uh, yeah, check out tough turf. It kicks ass. And you know what else you can do guys? You can look at the description of this podcast and you can click a link that'll take you to our Patreon page. And why would you want to do that? Well, because you can give us money and why would you want to give us money? Well, First of all, there's there's a lot in it for you. Uh, if you live in the continental United States, I will send you a movie from my personal collection right to your door. Just like that. You get a free movie. You donate any amount of money. You get a free fucking movie. And there's there's more movies than ever in the giveaway to patrons box because I, I'm in the process of uh, putting in some new shelves and I've been going through some things and, uh, you know, try, trying trying to, to purge some items from the old uh, movie collection while I put these new shelves up. So a lot of fun shit coming your way. Now you also get access, any amount of money you donate, you get access to our Patreon feed, which has tons of exclusive uh, podcast content, written content, all kinds of goodies. We're bringing back caustic content. So you're going to be getting that soon. Patreon, Patreon exclusive, all kinds of amazing shit. Now, If you donate at the five dollar and above level, uh, you get your name read out in the air, except Myros isn't here. So uh, not this week. Sorry, guys. God bless all of you. Uh, (laughs) And then uh, you also get to vote in patron exclusive polls, which means you get to help choose uh, what we're actually doing. And I think we'll probably have another one of those coming up soon. So keep your eyes peeled. There's never been a better time to be an Optimism Vaccine patron. Now. If you're like, fuck voting, fuck democracy, uh, fuck everything else. I want to be a dictator. I want to tell Optimism Vaccine exactly what they need to be watching. Well, you can donate either one time or as a reoccurring. If you are a, a generous individual, you can donate $25. And at that $25 level, you get to pick an episode, the whole thing, whatever the fuck you want, and we'll do it. Uh, And thankfully our patrons in the past have been very gracious and we've done some amazing uh, patron request episodes, but uh, also maybe you don't like us. Maybe you hate us so much that it's worth $25 to upset us. And that's fine too. You know, you want to, you want to donate $25 and make Myros watch hentai. It's, it's totally available It's out there. We'll make it happen. Um, Yeah. Other than that, If you have any questions, comments, death threats, marriage proposals, OptimismVaccine at gmail.com. Or you can hit us up on social media at OptimismVaccine, wherever you do social media things, I guess. Uh, And then uh, I guess keep an eye on Jack's Twitter because I'm sure he's going to upload Long Arm of the Law Part 4 (laughs) because your ass is never going to see it if you try and wait for a legal copy to come out.
2: Hopefully if I ever go on vacation to China, they'll let me in.
0: Yeah, maybe. We'll see. We'll see.
2: We don't uh, know but... what happened to Tiananmen. It could have been anything.
0: <laughs> well, with that, Jake, the last word is yours.
2: Barbarian fuck.
0: <laughs>